Believe that there is a secret, and you will feel an initiate. It doesn't cost a thing. Create a truth with fuzzy edges. When someone tries to define it, you repudiate them. Why go on writing novels? Rewrite history. Umberto Eco. France, 1885. The Pyrenees Mountains, a natural fortress straddling the border between France and Spain. Travelers to this region will often remark how the ancient geological formation radiates a sense of mystery, helped, of course, by the fog banks rolling off of its tall peaks. There are many legends that surround the Pyrenees, which once hosted ancient sects during the Crusade, many of whom were said to have dabbled in the occult. Naturally, this part of the country makes for the perfect setting for an unusual tale. It all began with a priest named Berger Saunier, who had served most of his life as a traveling man of the cloth in the many scattered villages throughout the region. On June 1, 1885, Father Saunier was appointed the head priest of St. Mary Magdalene Church in the small, quiet village of Rennes-le-Château. With a flock of 300 parishioners, it wasn't a particularly difficult challenge. It was also a clean break for Saunier, who was no stranger to controversy. He had already made a few powerful enemies. The priest was anti-Republican, loathed by the French Minister of Religion, and highly opinionated but his parishioners generally loved him. His appointment to a backwater village near the Pyrenees was no doubt partially motivated to ensure he would keep out of trouble. Saulnier was joined by his maid, Marie Denalnaud, and her family. Some speculated they had an ongoing affair, but this is probably unlikely, as he had written extensively on proper decorum. Little did Saulnier know... His arrival in the French village would not only alter its history, but set into motion a vast, intricately linked drama of courtroom battles and conspiracy theories spanning the next hundred years. In this episode of Relic, how a bit of religious swindling ended up resulting in one of the most popular modern novels of the last 20 years, The Da Vinci Code. When Father Saunier came to Rennes-la-Château at the end of the 1800s, the priest did not waste any time in spearheading various building projects, ostensibly to expand and renovate the deteriorating church's estate. Many of the new additions inside the church were welcomed. Breathtaking commissions from highly skilled artisans, craftsmen, and sculptors. They were also a bit 
on the expensive side. But for a time, their modeling likely impressed the villagers of Rennes-la-Château, who weren't accustomed to such finery at their place of worship. Father Sonia also kept meticulous records and receipts for all of these projects. Which is why some people started wondering, how is a priest from a provincial French village of less than 300 people able to afford such pricey renovations? Suspicions continued to arise as Saunier began to put some of that money towards his own personal residence, which ruffled the feathers of the locals and the church at large. These personal expenditures did not go unnoticed in rural France. Aside from purchasing large swaths of land, Saunier's estate included a villa, a tower he used as a library, an orange orchard, a garden that included a reflecting pool, and, oh, buried the lead on this one, a live monkey zoo. Not that the Catholic Church as an institution isn't responsible for some of the most opulent works of art and buildings in the world, but in general, they like to keep their priests humble and not living on lavish estates. Beyond the fact that Sonier was making it rain like the most pious attendee at a Pyrenees strip club, the church noticed that all these estate purchases had been done in the name of Sonier's maid, which was very suspect. The bishops decided he had gone too far. Berenger Sonier was stripped of his ministerial rights and exiled from the village. But for all of those present in the hilltop town of Rennes-le-Château, it wasn't entirely clear what had led to his expulsion. Remember, this was almost a century before the internet, and though the local villages were deeply involved with the church, Saunier's defrocking was likely seen as an ecclesiastic embarrassment. The Catholic Church, which to this day remains a deeply secretive institution not fond of addressing scandals, preferred to sweep the case under the rug. And boy, did this not work out the way they wanted it at all. As is bound to happen in any small town, rumors and whispers began to paint Berger Saulnier not merely in an unflattering light, but an implicitly sinister one. There were those who spoke of Saulnier skulking around the church late at night during the renovations, or only undertaking work on the architecture after the village had gone to sleep. And these malevolent portrayals persisted long after the priest had been removed from his post. Decades after the priest had died, old women would practically spit at Saulnier's name. The wary would point to the church's unusual baptismal font in the shape of, well, Satan, and say that Saulnier himself had been transfigured into the statue. There was talk that the priest's mysterious fortune had even been bankrolled by a deal with the devil. By the late 1940s, the legend of the dubious priest had not yet quieted. It was, in all likelihood, one of the few notable stories in an otherwise uneventful village. The maid Marie de Nanode, now quite old, had stayed behind to manage the estate, as Saulnier had left it in her name. I can only imagine how isolating her existence must have been, especially in the wake of such scandal, the truth of which was not fully understood. Marie was known to rent out the property, and this provided her a source of income. One tenant of hers was a schoolteacher, who ended up moving to metropolitan Paris not long after his stay. He taught the children of a mystery writer and chef by the name of Noël Corbeau, who was looking to make a life change after a series of failed endeavors, 
Corbu was put in touch with the aging Denanon, who could barely afford to keep up and maintain the crumbling property, and sold it to Corbu and his family. Corbu had misgivings about the move, as the past few years had been unkind to him. But he said that Denanod had taken him aside and, rather cryptically, assured him, "'Pray do not worry yourself, Monsieur Corbu,' she said. "'You shall have more money than you will be able to spend.'" The words of an ill and aging woman? Or a portent to something life-changing? After Marie Denarnaud passed away, Corbeau moved to the village of Rennes-le-Chateau and converted the estate into an inn and restaurant. In the process, he also inherited the archives related to the late priest, Father Saulnier. And that's when Corbeau came across something startling and bizarre about the infamous holy man. According to these documents, while renovating the cathedral, Saulnier had unearthed old parchments hidden inside the architecture. Now, some versions of the story say this was found in a pillar. Others allude to it being hidden under the altar, inside a wall, or I guess any structure where someone might conceal something big and mysterious in a church. In 1956, Corbu got in touch with a local newspaper who published his discovery. And it was a bombshell. Corbu alleged that he had uncovered the true source of Saunier's inexplicable wealth, a lost treasure from a legendary source, one of France's most celebrated queens. But before we delve further, let's take a little detour into the past. Originally hailing from Spain, Blanche of Castille was Queen of France during the mid-1200s. She was married to Louis VIII and gave birth to Louis IX, from whom she acted as regent twice during his reign. Blanche was very popular with the French public, just as she was deeply despised. For reasons I won't get into because France, and because middle-age politics is, quite frankly, exhausting, not everyone was on board with Louis IX, who inherited the throne at a very young age after his father's passing. Queen Blanche ruled while rearing Louis IX to be a proper king, and by all accounts she was a fantastic mother, who prioritized education and the arts. When a baron tried to stir up dissent and revolt against the future king, Queen Blanche knew she was going to have to do everything in her power to protect her son, for whom the destiny of France was dependent. While traveling to the south, both queen and prince were nearly kidnapped, and so the queen rallied the people of France to her cause. The citizenry lined up on the roads leading into Paris, while the prince and queen were granted safe passage under their protection. It also helped that Queen Blanche raised a very powerful army to quash any dissent. She was a fairly adept military strategist, who would herself appear on the battlefield to assist her soldiers, going so far as to personally gather wood to keep them warm during the winter. This earned her great admiration by those who loved her, but to her enemies, she was known as the Lady of Wolves, which is a pretty fantastic name, to be honest. She was a proponent of freedom of religion in a largely Catholic country, at least to some extent. While anti-Semitism reigned supreme, she ordered fair trials for any Jews who came into question by the court, and banned the burning of the Talmud. She also swore protection to Rabbi Yechil of Paris. 
So where does she fit into this strange saga of a duplicitous priest and a crazy conspiracy? Blanche's reign was marked not only by turmoil at home, but abroad, thanks to a little period of history called the Crusades. Queen Blanche was actually not all that on board with the concept of the religious war, but her son King Louis IX sure as hell was, and so he and his army, guarded by Templar soldiers, set out to Egypt to defend the Holy Land. But on April the 6th, 1250, Louis was captured at the Battle of Faresker in Egypt and held prisoner by the Saracens. Here is where Rennes Le Chateau comes into the picture. Supposedly, upon hearing of her son's capture, Queen Blanche immediately began to collect a ransom for his safe return, a sum of 28,500 gold pieces, according to the documentation Corbeau had discovered. Since the queen was familiar with the Pyrenees, and a surplus of gold was better off protected in a remote village where nobody would think to go looking for it, she had a portion of the ransom sent there and hidden on the church grounds. And then, I guess, she just forgot about it? In any case, Louis IX was returned to France, to the tune of 400,000 dinars. And that last sentence is pretty much one of the few things about the story that we can historically verify. In reality, St. Mary's Church was in a pretty shoddy state when Saulnier moseyed into town in the late 1800s, as nobody had really provided any upkeep in the last 600 years or so. Corbeau claimed that it was during renovations when Saulnier had stumbled upon the treasure of Blanche de Cassille, and apparently only half of this treasure. Thus solved the mystery of how the priest managed to build all those towers and orchards and monkey gardens or whatever. In keeping with the priest's rather shady character, Corbeau speculated that Saulnier had kept the discovery undisclosed, saved only to his trusty maid. The locals ate this story up. Little did Corbeau realize his discovery was about to put Rennes le Chateau on the map. As the story began to captivate the French public, treasure hunters and thrill-seekers from across the country descended upon this once sleepy village. Of course, this was all to the benefit of Noël Corbeau. While he had yet to discover any gold on the former church grounds, what Marie de Nonode had said to him was indeed very true. He had suddenly quite a bit of money on his hands. But what about those mysterious parchments that Father Saunier had allegedly discovered? What did they say exactly? Well, my friends, if you thought this story was already weird enough, this is where it takes a hard left turn into conspiracy land. Enter a gentleman named Pierre Plantard, arguably the most interesting character in this bizarre narrative. Born in Paris in 1920, Plantard left his school in his teenage years to join up with the Catholic Church as a sacristan, essentially the person who handles the materials for communion and the like. So World War II happens. Plantard was already in deep with the mysticism associated with Christianity and began to develop an obsession with secret societies. And not the friendly kumbaya ones, but the more let's steal the Ark of the Covenant because we're Nazis kind of secret societies. Unlike Queen Blanche, Plantard was, shall we say, a little cold on the subject of the Jews. To that end, he tried to form his own secret society, the Alpha Galates, which he eagerly pitched to the German occupying forces. 
But even the Nazis were like, what? And generally speaking, when the Nazis think you're too extreme, it's probably time for some serious soul searching. But not Plantard. He went ahead and formed the society anyway. So the Germans put him in prison because the Nazis were kind of obligated to do so. But then, of course, they realized they had much bigger fish to fry, being World War II, and they decided that Plantard wasn't worth their time. The Alpha Galates had a whopping four people to its membership, so Plantard was out within four months. When the Allies liberated Paris, Plantard, who was not on board, tried to pitch the Alpha Galates as a resistance group, but as expected, this did not pan out. In 1962, Plantard got wind of the treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau, and let me tell you, it had an effect on the man. He tried to write his own account of the treasure, which involved a lot more conspiracy, with, of course, an ample helping of anti-Semitism. It might shock you to know that Plantard had a lot of trouble finding a publisher, so he got some help from a fellow traveler named Gérard de Cid, and the end result was L'Or de Rennes, or the Gold of Rennes. This account focused less on the actual gold as described by Corbeau and supposedly dug up by Father Saunier, and more on those mysterious documents found concealed under the church floorboards. And this is the part of the story where things get more weird and complicated than even I typically have patience for, so I'm just going to do my best to give you the short version. Basically... Plantard had a theory that the bloodline of the Merovingian kings of France had continued well past its supposed expiration. Now, quick history lesson. The Merovingians were sort of like the successor rulers of the Roman Empire after it collapsed, and essentially founded France as we might sort of know it to this day. I mean, that's a simplification, but there you go, Wikipedia or whatever. Now, the bloodline of the founders of a country doesn't really matter to most people unless you happen to be a rampant French nationalist like Plantard, for whom it clearly mattered a lot. Enough so that it was a big deal when Plantard came forward with shocking admissions, based on the story of the parchments found in the church by Father Saunier. You see, Corbeau had never really elaborated on their contents, other than he believed that the parchments were more or less just various translations of the Gospels and nothing particularly earth-shattering. Plantard disputed this and said that the scrolls were actually a secret genealogy of the descendants of King Dagobert II. And oh, guess who's part of this bloodline? Plantard himself. Funny that. Well, to most people, it sounded like a pretty convenient coincidence. But here's the thing. When investigators went to go looking for the evidence, likely in the hopes of shaming some weird bigot named Pierre, they stumbled upon an unusually supportive document in the National Library of France. This manuscript detailed a shadowy group called the Priory of Sion, and if that name sounds familiar, then congratulations, you probably read a book circa 2003 to 2004. If not, I'll get to that in a little bit. The information inside this book included a genealogy, compiled by researchers under an order from Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, that backed up Plantard's claim that there was a bloodline of Merovingian kings that had lasted to this day, with Plantard as one of the descendants. You can expect that Pierre Plantard was probably tickled to find this out. 
The eponymous Priory of Sion were a Templar-adjacent order founded by Godfrey of Bouillon during Crusades, related to the Abbey of Our Lady of Mount Zion. As this new story took hold of the French public and Plantard's book started to gain attention, Plantard was naturally questioned about his knowledge of the mysterious Rennes-le-Château parchments. Plantard said that his grandfather knew Berger Saunier personally and claimed that the real source of the wealth was not the treasure of King Louis IX's ransom, but a neighboring priest who happened to be a patron of Saunier's. However, he believed that there was a real treasure still out there on the grounds waiting to be discovered. Queen Blanche's involvement came from her own inquest into the lineage of French kings, and her research served as the contents of the parchments found inside the church by Saunier. The treasure was not of her doing, but of King Dagobert II, which had been inherited from the Hebrew tribe of Benjamin. You know, those guys from the Old Testament. It's now the 1980s. Most of the hubbub surrounding the lost treasure or lost bloodline of Rennes-le-Château has been relatively contained within France. But as the years went on, the stories began to attract international notice. Such was the case when the production of the British archaeological documentary series Chronicle took up an interest in the strange saga, which was both deeply intriguing and likely ratings gold. Now, Chronicle was sort of like an early 2000s history channel show in that half of what was presented was legitimately factual and the other half was a bit sensationalized. Not quite it was aliens levels, but more did the Vikings land in North America first or was Stonehenge the first computer levels. The episode on Rennes-le-Château and the Merovingian legacy proved to be a smash hit. And in 1982, authors Michael Bijan, Richard Late, and Henry Lincoln decided to pen a book delving deeper into the subject called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The novel went one step further and theorized that not only was there a Merovingian descendant running around modern times somewhere, but the Merovingian themselves were descended from Jesus. Specifically, the author theorized an alternate ending to the New Testament of the Bible, where Jesus married Mary Magdalene in secret and escaped to France, where they intermixed with ancient French nobility and kicked off the Merovingian dynasty. The Priory of Sion was a Templar organization with the sole purpose of protecting both the secret of this bloodline and its descendants a secret society that was said to extend into modern times to ensure the survival of the descendants of the Messiah. The authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail postulated that the actual Holy Grail was a metaphor for the womb of Mary Magdalene and her sacred bloodline. So, in other words, yes, quite literally, the real Holy Grail was just the friends we made along the way. Now, this is not a video game plot. This is a thing people actually believed. It also indirectly now meant that Pierre Plantard, Nazi sympathizer, might be the descendant of Jesus Christ, arguably one of the most famous Jews of all time. Strangely enough, Plantard was not really that thrilled with the idea and dismissed this book as fiction. 
But that didn't stop an American novelist by the name of Dan Brown from using the contents of Holy Blood, Holy Grail as a major plot line for his 2003 bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. And if you're one of the three people who didn't read it, the plot is basically a secret branch of the Catholic Church is out to kill another secret society trying to hide the mystery of the Holy Grail that's hidden inside Da Vinci's great works of art. And there's something about the Mona Lisa. I forget. It's been a while. But one of the secret societies mentioned in the book is none other than the Priory of Sion, which author Dan Brown states was a real organization created in 1099. Now, what we have here is an ever-evolving conspiracy theory by way of exquisite corpse, with each successive individual trying to make a buck off the wild theories and claims of the former. Except, arguably, Dan Brown, since he's been pretty clear that this book was a work of fiction, so good on him, I guess. So where is the truth in any of this, if there is anything to be had concerning treasures lost, real, metaphorical, or imaginary? Is some crusty anti-Semite really the descendant of Jesus? And is there gold still on the church property in Rennes le Chateau? It's best to start way back at the top with Father Berenger Saunier and work our way down from there. One of the more recent myths surrounding Saulnier's wealth was that he was being patroned by an Austrian duke who was one of the members of the Priory of Sion. The motivation for this is unclear, but may have been in order to continue to safekeep the secret documents inside the church. But thank goodness for the work of actual historians who had to sift through the myth and the scraps of the truth to find out how a provincial priest became so loaded overnight. Thanks to a gentleman named René Descadillas, a historian and librarian, we know the likely true story. Without delving too much into Catholic protocol, essentially as a priest, you are supposed to be very, very, very particular about how you conduct yourself when it comes to your religious duties and financial transactions, as the Catholic Church didn't really come out looking too good after that whole accepting indulgences thing during the Middle Ages. Saulnier, it seemed, played fast and loose with selling masses to people looking to book them, sometimes never actually following through with the masses, as well as accepting donations. A big no-no. And likely this is why, when the bishop or whomever discovered these dealings, Father Saulnier was quickly sacked. Father Berenger Saulnier wasn't a mastermind, or dealing with the devil, or just some lucky guy who stumbled upon a lost treasure. He was a fraud. As for Mr. Corbeau, as inconsistencies and contradictions began to emerge in Plantard's research, Corbeau produced two manuscripts that he said he acquired from a French retired archaeologist named Ernest Crow. These reports, of dubious origin, were later discredited when it was discovered that one of them was written on the same paper and ink as Corbeau's typewriter. Eventually, the so-called parchments of the Merovingian dynasty were published. But it was very clear to anybody with a relative knowledge of antique literature that these were hoaxes. But what about the genealogy discovered in the National Library of France that Plantard cited as evidence of this royal bloodline? Upon further inspection, it was discovered that the documentation was entirely fabricated, 
because apparently waltzing into the Bibliothèque Nationale and dropping off a fake book was easy to do back in the day. Despite this, Plantard continued the charade well into the 1980s, revising his original statements each time he was called out on another lie. By the 90s, he said there were real parchments that were discovered under the St. Mary Magdalene Church, but these he had hidden inside a safe deposit box. The different parties involved in the Selenier affair had deliberately or unwillingly attached themselves to a lie, reproducing, corroborating, and adding to what was essentially a piece of misunderstood gossip that had just run amok. As church historian Raymond Derricot said of the whole affair, to begin with, there was nothing. So what really happened to Béranger Saunier, the wily priest who thought he could make a buck selling masses? Around the turn of the century, the bishopric caught on to his deeds and had warned him in letters several times, until he was finally transferred out of Rennes-le-Château to a village called Castot. But giving up his cushy position turned out to be too much for Saunier, who fought back against the bishop and resigned from his post to become a freelance priest. But the damage was already done, and the bishop was pissed. He ordered an ecclesiastical indictment and charged Saunier with trafficking in masses, insubordination, and unjustified expenditure fees for masses, some of which had never been performed. The trial fees became so much that Saulnier, already out of a job, resorted to selling rosaries and religious wares on the street. He died in poverty and obscurity on January 22, 1917. His faithful maid, Marie Denanode, paid for Saulnier's coffin. To say there was never a treasure at Rennes-le-Château would be inaccurate. The wealth generated by the town and the silver-tongued gentleman involved with fabricating the legend makes this one a self-fulfilling treasure, and plenty of people walked away with their pockets full of cash, at the expense of historical credibility. Rennes-le-Château remains a major tourist destination that still draws in hundreds of treasure hunters each year. Many claim that the debunking of the Blanche de Castille parchments and her treasure is just a cover-up. They say they know the real truth, that it's more than just a story that went too far. Fearing grave robbers, the authorities had Béranger Saulnier's remains disinterred and reburied in a cement coffin. The cemetery at St. Mary Magdalene's remains locked away and forbidden. Though the living continue to spin wild yarns about the curious village, the dead, not wanting for gold nor fame, can at least know peace. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like what you've heard and want to make me happier than a French maid, then you can rate and review Relic in iTunes. 
We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episode to my General Paranormal Mystery podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder treasures that can't fit into a full episode. Just check patreon.com slash relic. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, Prohibition-era New York was ruled over by the five great mafia families until one vicious gangster named Dutch Schultz moved in on their territory. Legend has it that he buried something of tremendous value, something that treasure hunters and mobsters alike have been hungry to get their hands on for over 50 years. The adventure continues.